Well, church, how's everyone feeling today? I am so glad to be back here. Uh, very cold morning. Uh, this morning we woke up. I was like, what the heck happened last night? It got cold. But, you know, I tell you what, we are happy to just be here. Listen, if you're cold outside, where's the best place to go? Is someplace where it's nice and warm. And so here at church, we love to just kind of warm up together. We got great coffee and stuff. So if you feel like this is a great place, if you enjoy it, invite your friends over. Invite family members over. I swear 2016 is going to be a great year for Impact City Church. And you don't want to miss out on what God is doing here as well. Uh, very thankful. I know a lot of people are making the resolution to try to get back in the church. I'm so proud of you for doing that. We love you. We welcome you back. Thank you for being here. I hope y'all's week has been going good. I know mine has. I'm, I'm a little sluggish, but we're going to get through this today. Amen? All right, let's go ahead and just jump right on in here. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14 is where we're going to be at today. Uh, if you don't have your Bibles, we have some at the end of the rows. Uh, just tell you the, the your neighbor at the end of the row, hey, give me a Bible, pass it on down here. If not, you can go on to Facebook and log on to our Facebook page. The scriptures should have been posted up already, uh, so they should be there for you to, to read through. And uh, what we're going to be at, we're going to be starting in verse 30, I'm sorry, in verse 10, going through verse 31 today, so we have a lot to cover. So just go ahead and listen fast. Don't worry, I'll make it simple for us here and it's going to be great. Uh, so what we're going to see here today in the scriptures, what we're going to, to kind of go through is we're going to see that Jesus is going to predict the betrayal from Judas. If you've been in church any amount of time, you know that there was a disciple named Judas, and he was a follower of Jesus, and one day he decided to betray and try to turn his back on Jesus. But not only that, but we're going to see that all the rest of the disciples are going to fall away from Jesus as well. Eventually, they're going to turn their backs on him for at least once. Eventually, they're going to, they're going to fall away for just a moment, for a while, eventually, in their walk with Jesus. Now, last week, we said that the story of Jesus was nearing the end, and it's just one step closer to that here today. And we're going to see that um, again, all the 12 disciples will eventually fall away from Jesus at least once in their lifetime. And we're going to see how we can relate to that as well. But it's really odd to think about. Like, there, if you would think about this, these 12 guys that hung out with Jesus every day, you would think that of anyone in the history of the world was ever taught the right way to live, it was these 12 disciples, Right? I mean, anyone in the history of the world, these 12 guys were discipled right. They were taught correctly. They were cared for and loved for properly by Jesus. I mean, come on, for, th for three years, he poured and invested his life into these 12 men. And these 12 men should know, if anyone in the history of the world should know how to live correctly for the gospel, it's these 12 people. I mean, amen? Am I right? Am I wrong? These people live with Jesus in the flesh. And that begs the question, though. That begs the question. If these 12 people who were with Jesus in the flesh, if these 12 people all eventually turned their back on him for a moment, then what is the hope for us? You know, 2,000 plus years later, what is the hope for us to be able to, to persevere? Not only that, how do we know that we're going to persevere with Jesus until the end. If these 12 who knew him in the flesh did not persevere and fell away towards the end, how do we know that we're going to be able to persevere to the end? Because the reality of life is this. Is that you may be successfully fighting sin right now. 
You may be successfully fighting sin and temptation right now, but eventually it will wear you down little by little until you give yourself up over to the promises that the world has to offer you over Jesus. You may be good right now, but eventually you will fall. And I don't think there's anyone in here that, that can, can agree more than to say that, you know what, I'm, you know, I do fall. And Jesus said this, he says, In the end, the love of many will grow cold, but those who endure to the end will be saved. And Jesus says that if you endure my, my love, if you walk with me all the way through the end, you will be saved. The question I want us to wrestle with here today is this, will you endure? Will you endure and will you persevere this life? And I think for some of us, right off the bat, we want to answer that question real fast. We want to say, you know what? Of course I'll persevere. I love Jesus. I'm a, I, mean, I love Jesus. I'm, I'm going to persevere. After all, we all love Jesus. Of course we're going to persevere. And deep down inside, I think we all know that's not 100% true. Because it might have been earlier this week. It might have been at New Year's Eve. It might have been earlier this morning. But at some point in time, you turned your back away from Jesus and you sinned against Jesus. I think if we're honest with us, many of us know that we might desire to persevere, but the reality is many of us will probably not even make it through the next few hours without turning our backs on Jesus one more time before the end of the day. Then there's other of us that feel the fear of not even being able to know if we are even saved by Jesus. So we're like, I, I, I want to persevere, but I'm so scared. I don't even know if I am saved. I don't even know if Jesus knows me to be saved. And what we see here is these two different extreme responses to the, uh, the, the assessing of the contemplating of our perseverance. Two different responses, two different things. The first one is this, is that I'm going to make it because I love Jesus. And you have full confidence in that. And you know that, and, and, and that's good. It seems that this is the overbearing confidence that people have, and that's good. We need to have a confident, you know, hope in our salvation. We'll talk about that later on in the sermon. But the problem with this is that there are people out there who are so confident in their ability that they are going to persevere that they don't think that their poop stinks, like straight up. They think they are perfect. They think they're righteous beyond all righteousness. These are the people that come into church and they walk and they look at that person like, huh, single mom, that harlot. Oh, huh, cheating spouse, that loser. Huh, that guy has a drinking problem. Ha, 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 ha. And they're full of pride and ambition. They think they're so good and it's so righteousness. The response is, the bad part about that response is that they're assuming that they're going to persevere without understanding the fact that they themselves have sin in their hearts as well. They're so confident in themselves, they forget that they too can fall. The other response is the, I don't know if I'm going to make it response. I don't know if I'm going to persevere. I really don't know if it's going to work out. I don't know. This is the guy who fears every day, who walks through life, that's always questioning their salvation and say, I wonder how God can save a soul like me, a wrench like me. How can he, how can he even have love for me? Or they say, like, I just can't understand how God would, would, would save me. Why would he even look towards me? And every little failure of their life becomes the final test, the litmus test of their life to say whether or not they're going to go into heaven. And they fear as if God has already abandoned them because they are no good, just downright and sinful people that can never get their, their stuff straight. Church, both of these responses are wrong. 
Both of these responses are wrong, and these responses actually show a lack of something in our life. The first response reveals a lack of understanding of our own sinfulness. The prideful person who thinks that they are so good and so righteous shows a lack of understanding of our own sinfulness. The, the reason that they don't quite understand that the, the veins of sin run deep into the core of their heart. They don't understand that. They don't understand the fact that at, at, at the very soul of their heart, if they give over just a little bit, they can fall into a world of sinfulness. We see it with addiction all the time. We see it with those who are addicted all the time. They, they, they cut just a little bit loose, and then they, just, they, they fall deeper into sin. And for one night or for one week or for a, a, a spell of, of just weeks at a time, they'll be amongst sinfulness in their life. The second response reveals a lack of understanding of God's faithfulness. Well, we might say, oh, I'm so scared. of. I don't know if I'm good. I'm such a horrible person. I keep messing up as much good as I try to do. I know I'm not necessarily good. If that is you here today, you have a lack of God's faithfulness in you. You don't understand the fact that it's not about what you do. It's about what God has done in your life. That is a wrong response. It's this condemnation that comes upon you. And it's not about what you will do to earn God's salvation. It's about what his son Jesus did on the cross for us. No matter which side you fall on, the fact of the matter is this. In these next few verses, Jesus is going to reveal to us two truths today. Two things that we need to know as truth here today that will help us better understand and figure out how we will persevere in this life. He reveals to us two things. The first is this, is that we are more sinful than we can ever imagine. And the second thing is this. Even though we're more sinful than we can ever imagine, God is more faithful than we can ever dare dream. I mean, if that doesn't just stir in your heart today, then you must need to check your pulse because of the fact that we are so sinful that we can ever imagine, but God is still as faithful as we can ever dream of, that is awesome news today. And so with that, I want us to eagerly dive into today's text, Mark 14, starting at verse 10. 1410. They're all sitting around dinner table right now, and this is what happens. It says, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad, and they promised to give him money, and they sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will, we have, will, will you have us go to prepare you to eat the Passover? And he said to two of his disciples, he said to them, Go into the city, and, and you will find a man carrying a jar of water you will, who will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, and where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready to be, pre- to be prepared for us. Verse 16. And the disciples set out, and they went into the city, and they found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. 
Now, in a nutshell, what's going on here is that we find out that Judas is desiring to betray Jesus over the next couple days. He's contemplating. He's putting his plan into motion. He's, he's went over to the chief priest. And he said, all right, guys, take it out. I know Jesus. I run with Jesus. We're cool. We're tight. And if you want to get to Jesus, there's a price to be paid. And they said, we'll offer you so many shekels of silver, 30 shekels of silver. And if you betray Jesus, we'll give you this money. And so he sold out on Jesus for just 30 shekels of silver. And then the other thing we see here is that the disciples are like trying to figure out where they're going to eat the Passover meal. And they're just like me. And like, it, it, there's a lot of things going on right now, but the most important thing is like what I would say is where we're going to eat. Like straight up, I'm hungry, you're hungry, we got to figure out where we're going to eat, we got to get this part down, and then we can do the rest of the ministry. But they're like, where are we going to eat, Jesus, okay? And in case you're wondering, the Passover was a once-a-year holiday that they would gather together, they would celebrate, and they would, they would eat a meal in celebration of the Passover that happened in the book of Exodus. If you remember what happened in Exodus, all of the Jewish people were captured by Pharaoh, and they were in Egypt, and, and Moses went up to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. Remember that? And he just let my people go, and Pharaoh was like, nah, bro. You know, and so they're like, okay. So God goes, Moses, go back and say, if you do not let my people go, I will send plagues upon Pharaoh. And so Moses went back and said, hey, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh was like, nah, bro. And so he went ahead and sent plague after plague after plague. Well, the last plague was the plague of, um, of the first death of the firstborn. And so what God said, like, listen, if Pharaoh's heart is so hardened right now, if he will not let his people go, what I will do is I will sweep across the land a death angel. And this angel will go through the land killing and taking the souls of the very first firstborn child throughout the land. Crazy, right? You think like, you know, you think like some of these movies you see on TV are bad. The Bible's crazy. And so here comes the death angel. And then what God told Moses, like, listen, if you don't want your firstborn killed, is this guy's going to hold no holds bar against the whole countryside, right? If you don't want your firstborn killed, what you do is you slaughter a lamb. You take the blood of the lamb, and over the doorway of your home, you put the blood of the lamb over the doorway. So when the deaf angel comes over, when the spirit of death comes over the land, it's going to see the blood of the lamb. That was the sacrificial lamb. And instead of taking your firstborn son, your one true first son, he will take the blood of the sacrifice of the lamb instead. And it will pass over your house. And so that's exactly what these guys are celebrating here. They were eating a meal called a Seder. In case you don't know what a Seder is, if you ever want to experience a Seder, Sarah and I do a Seder every year in our home. If you've ever been in our home for the Seder, it's fun. It's great. It all points back to Jesus, and we do one every year, so we'll let you know about that. Maybe we can do one together as a church and kind of celebrate that. But, but that's beyond the point. I'm going to ADD. Let's keep reading here, okay? Ah, keep it together, Felix. Keep it together. Verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and they were reclining in the table eating. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, the one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful, and they began to say to one another, to, to each other, is it I? Is it me? Is it you? Is it I? Who is it? And he said to them, it is the one of the twelve, the one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written to him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. 
it would have been better for that man if he had not even been born. Wow. So everyone is celebrating. Everyone's having a good time. Everyone's gathered around. We're all getting together. There's a big celebration for the Passover. Everyone's cool. There's a, you know, just relaxing. There's eating. There's great food involved. And out of nowhere, Jesus decides to take this moment to kind of dump upon them and this issue and talk about sin in front of them. He's like, boom, guess what? One of you guys is going to betray me. And they're like, party's over. You know what I mean? Like that is just done. That kills the party right there. But guess what? Jesus doesn't care if he ruined the party. He didn't care if he ruined the party because he knows that it's not just the party that's going to get ruined if he does not confront sin in the lives of the disciples. It's their eternity that will get ruined. Listen, God does not care if your life gets ruined because of your sin and because you get found out in your sin because he has to confront your sin. He'd rather you go through a season of regret and a season of sorrow because you're, you've been regretting the fact that your sin has been revealed versus your eternity being re, uh, uh, eternity of regret and eternity of sorrow because of your sinful life. Jesus doesn't care. He knows. He takes sin very seriously. He knows that the only way we're going to persevere in this life is that if we have an intimate knowledge of our own sinfulness. He knows that. And if there was ever a time not to talk about sin, it would be at the dinner table. But Jesus doesn't care. He just doesn't care. He didn't leave it alone. He didn't stay quiet about it. And just like us Christians in our life, if we have a fellow Christian who is a friend of ours who you see struggling, it is better to love them by revealing that sin to them, by telling them that this is wrong versus staying quiet and not saying anything. Look again at verse 18. He says that as they were reclining at the table eating, everything's cool. They're having a good time. They're reclining. They're eating. He said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, the one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful, saying to one another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is the one of the twelve who is dipping the bread into the dish with me. Now Jesus was purposely being really ambiguously in this context. That means he was on purpose, he was being kind of vague in what he was saying. If he wanted to, he could be like, Guys, guess what? Judas is going to betray him. Take him down. You know, like he could have said that, but that wasn't the point of what he was going after. He knew that Judas was going to betray him. But he was using that as a, as a moment to teach his disciples a better lesson. He wanted each of them to be considering the fact that it could have been them. He wanted them to be considering that it was just one of them. That's why he said one of the twelve versus saying Judas is going to betray me. He said one of, these, one of you guys here in this room is going to betray me. Not someone on the outside is going to betray me tonight. Not one of the chief priests or some of the Pharisees, the guys who have been trying to trap me all these years. But one of you guys is going to betray me. One of you guys. And they're all there thinking, like, well, what do you mean? Like, we love you, Jesus. Like, what do you mean? And they're like, is it me? Is it you? Like, who is this? Church, listen. When it comes to sin, we have to understand that we ourselves are our own culprit. When it comes to sin in our lives, there is no one to blame but ourselves. And this is exactly what Jesus is trying to show his disciples. Hey, someone's going to betray me. And it's not good for you to point the finger at anyone else. You need to consider the fact that that this could be you. That you could betray me. One of you could betray me tonight. You need to understand that. 
And we can't think about sin as something that is done by, by someone else or something that comes upon us. We have to understand it is our fault, our own selfishness that causes us to sin. But we have to see that something done inside of our hearts as well. We can't give in to the notion that we can never sin like the first response saying that, but I love you, Jesus. I will never turn away from you. We can't get into that laxed uh, mindset where we feel as if, you know what, um, I, I don't believe that I can sin. Do you know that there are actually some religions that teach that once you are saved, you will never sin again? I want you to understand that that is false. You can sin again. The difference is, though, that your sin is covered and Jesus doesn't recognize your sin because it is covered by his blood. But we are definitely going to mess up again. Now, here's the thing. The strive of a Christian is to strive for perfection. Amen? The strive of a Christian is to constantly be more like Jesus. So don't use that as an excuse to go back home and sin as much as you want. And say, like, yeah, Pastor Felix said I'm going to sin anyway. So I'm just going to get wasted tonight and get like really messed up tonight. Or I'm going to go and I'm going to just go, I'm going to surf the internet and look at bad things. Or I'm going to go, you know, do something bad. You know, I'm going to do something like, no, don't, don't, don't misquote me, Okay. The difference is, is that if you're striving for perfection and you're living a life that is trying to be as righteousness for Jesus as possible, when you mess up, you will feel conviction. And that should be right. The Spirit is living in you. But Jesus will see it and cover it with his blood, with love and grace. Got to know that. And we'll cover that in here in just a little bit. But we can't have the the expectation that, that this excludes ourselves from the community of sinners also. Like, oh, I am so good. I will never sin against Jesus. And because I will never sin against Jesus, I don't want to hang out with all the sinful people in church or in my neighborhood. I don't want to even, they're crazy. Those people down the street, they party too much. I don't want to be with them. Or you want to ever get to the place where you say, like, I could never do that. Let me tell you something. There are pastors and preachers out there, men of God, that have fallen into infidelity and falling into sin. And I guarantee you, every single one of those guys said, I could never sin. There is a, 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 a type of theology out there that's come, a word of faith theology that says that these pastors, these, these men of God are higher above everyone else. And if you're a Christian, a follower, that you can never sin. And if you look on TV, the majority of pastors, this is just a personal rant here, the majority of pastors who have fallen into to, to just money scams and sinful lifestyles, infidelity and cheating and stuff like that, the majority of those men come from that doctrine that says you cannot sin. And because you cannot sin, you're a child of God, and God's love is on you. So their mindset is this. I am entitled to everything that I have, and I, no matter what I do, I will not fall short. No, that's a terrible theology to have. We need to have the understanding that our sin is on ourselves. That if we sin, it is our fault, and we have to, have the, we have to wreak whatever, um, you know, uh, whatever comes our way because of that sin. Understanding our own sinfulness is good. So let's play a little game here. All right? Understanding our own sinfulness. You already played a game? You guys are looking kind of tired today. I want us to think about the biggest sinner you know who comes to mind. Just think about that person. Just think about them. If he's in the room next to you, just don't look at them because that's going to— don't nudge them. Okay? Just think about the, the, the biggest sinner in your life. Seriously, the person that you think has the most potential to sell out on Jesus in some way. Think about that person. You're like, that person is jacked up. That person is the worst person I think I can ever know. 
Is this some person out there? Maybe it's a college friend or someone who parties all the time. It's that one person that takes the party to a whole other level, okay? Maybe it's a neighbor who you caught cheating on their spouse. You're like, man, I know that red car is not supposed to be in the driveway when he's out working. You know, I know that's not, maybe it's that, maybe it's your spouse. You're like, no, whatever. Okay, maybe it's a parent who lashes out at their children in anger over everything. Okay, maybe it's that guy on the news who, uh, who, who raped that woman. And you get that picture, that mugshot in your mind. Maybe it's the guy who shot that other guy, who tried to rob that old man in front of his house. And that guy is the worst sinner. He was going to kill that old guy. Maybe it's the guy that ran up to the police officer in Philadelphia and shot him and tried to assassinate them. Maybe that's the greatest sinner in your, uh, you can, that's the guy, you, you know, that comes in the mind. You may have thought that either one of these were potential people to be the worst sinner you've ever thought of, but I guarantee you that none of you thought about yourselves. Let me say that again. I guarantee all of you thought that at least one of these persons might have been the greatest sinner in the world, but none of you thought that you were the greatest sinner in the world. None of you. Jesus wants us to think about ourselves when we are thinking about the greatest sinner who has the most potential to turn away and sell out on him. When we think about the people in this world, the one that we can control and determine the destiny of that person is only one person, that's you. So when you think about the greatest sinner of the world, do you think about the image in the mirror? He wants us to ask, is it me, Lord? Could it be I, like the disciples? Could it be me? Could I be the one that trades against you, who sells out on you? Jesus was inviting us to answer the same question that he asked his disciples. One of you would betray me here today. And I want to ask you this today. One of you will betray Jesus before you end the, the day by today. Which one of it is, go, is going to be? Who, which one of you is it going to be? If you're thinking, man, I love Jesus. I would do anything for him. Sure, I sin and everybody else does. And every once in a while I might do that. But I could never be like Judas. I could never go to the extent that Judas did. Listen, this text is for you. It isn't for the people who are on the outside who know they're sinful. This is for the people who are on the inside. Jesus said that one of you will betray me today. He's saying, I know you think you're righteous. I know you think you're cool. I know you think you're in with the clique and you're all cool and awesome because you're running with JC. I know you think you're good on that. But listen, one of you is going to betray me today. Church, one of us here will eventually sin against God when we go home tonight. I guarantee you that. Author Tim Keller once said, if you don't know who Tim Keller is, he's sure he's a great guy. He says, when it comes to the understanding of our sinfulness, it is not enough just to ask, what have I done? But also to ask, what am I capable of doing? If I was under the certain threats, if I was under certain temptations, if I was under certain pressures, if I was under certain opportunities, could I produce great evil inside and uncertain, under uncertain circumstances, which I have not experienced yet? And the Bible says, yes, I will fall. You think you're good. But have you ever been in that situation when temptation is so strong, it is like a sledgehammer hitting you over and over and over again, eventually, where you fall and not persevere. When it comes to contemplating our own sinfulness, we cannot just look at the bad things we have done, but we also need to look at the bad things we are capable of doing. 
You understand that, that the bad things that we are capable of doing, that's deep, right? It's not just what we've done. It's what we could do. We've got to constantly be on guard. You may never betray Jesus, but you have, a, have to at least understand, apart from God's grace, under certain circumstances and pressures, you're at least capable of doing it. You've got to understand that. The truth is that we are constantly at battle with the enemy that will stop at nothing to deter you from Jesus. One who will do anything that it takes to make you fall away from Jesus. And for this reason alone, we must understand that the strongest Christian who can fall away from Jesus could be you. The strongest Christian that can fall, backslide, relapse, cheat again at the core, it could be you. We have to come to terms with that. Depressing? Yeah. Pretty depressing. But knowing our sinfulness is absolutely critical to persevering to the end because we know that our sinfulness alone, if we just think about that on our own, we will know that we will just fall into a deep depression and a spiral into hopelessness and despair. If all we ever do is think about our sinfulness, that's that's the life we're going to live. But something else has to be revealed to us. And in the midst of our sinfulness, in the midst of our life, Jesus has revealed to his disciples and to us that he also provides a solution for our sin. Verse 22, look at, look at it with me. Verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. And he said, take this, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And he drank, and all of them drank. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He's talking about the Lord's Supper. We'll go over that next week. But what he's talking about is the Lord's Supper. He says the solution that Jesus was showing his disciples that God is faithful. The solution to our sin, the solution to to trying to persevere is that God is faithful. So a little background here. In verse 21, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, okay? Which is exactly, uh, but what exactly does that mean? The Son of Man, what exactly does that mean? And how does it tie into God's faithfulness? Well, the Son of Man was an Old Testament title, okay? Turn with me to Daniel 7. It's way back in the Old Testament. Just go way back. Daniel 7. Verse 7. And as you turn in there, you'll see that the Son of Man and God's faithfulness ties in very well together. Daniel 7, verse 22. It says, And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, This is my body. I'm sorry. Let me go down to Daniel. Pastor, you're... Ah, pastor fail. Hashtag. Okay, Daniel says, this is Daniel here. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came into the ancient of days and was given and was present before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages served him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed the son of man is a powerful powerful 
person. And we know that he is someone who has dominion over nations, someone who has dominion over languages and, and people all over the earth. But the Son of Man was not someone who was betrayed, beaten, spit upon, and hung upon the cross like a common criminal. However, when looking at the Old Testament, you also see that the Lamb of God will be slain. That the people of God would sacrifice a lamb which would act as a substitute for the death that they deserve. Think about the Passover there. And we see that in the story of Moses, and you see it in the ten plagues, that during the last plague, the death angel would come over, remember, he would pass over the people. So when Jesus said that I am the son of man, but here is my body to be broken for you and for my blood to be poured out for you, what Jesus was saying Say, yes, I'm the Son of Man, the Almighty, powerful Son of Man, all deserving of respect and dominion and power and greatness and glory. I am Him, but I give my body up to you to be broken for you, for my blood to be poured out for you as a substitute for your sin. He's saying that the Son of Man condescending Himself into the Lamb of God is the ultimate sign of God's faithfulness to us, that He is willing to go from the greatest authority in the universe to the most hated sacrificial thing that can ever be created for us. If we're going to endure and persevere to the end, we have to see that God is faithful, that he is faithful throughout, all the way, all the way through into the cross. So if we just saw that we were sinful, we won't persevere. We will have a constant downward depression and spiral like, I am so sinful, there is no hope for us. And if we see that God is faithful, we still won't persevere. Because at that point, we will take sin lightly. And we will constantly be going against God, understanding and leaning on his grace versus leaning on his authority as Lord of our life. We have to understand both. God is both, that we are both sinful and as far worse as we can ever ask or imagine. And, but he is also as faithful to us and loving to us that we can ever dare dream. It is only then that we will persevere this life to the end with a good balance of our sin and his grace in our life. So in closing, I will leave you with this. Our application of both of these understandings must be for us to say, Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness. Even in the midst of my own sinfulness, I am going to commit my life over to you, and I'm going to do so. I'm going to be so devoted to you that I may never fall away again in my own flesh. That is our response. That is the correct response that we should have. But you know that if there's ever an example in the Bible of how not to do something, it would be probably from a guy named Peter, right? Peter would give us the example of what not to do. And he does. He never, he never ceases to screw up and somehow and show us what not to do. Let's finish out with this. Verse 26 in Mark 14. And when they had sung a hymn, he went out to the Mount of Olives. This is Jesus. And he said to them, you were all fall away. <laughs> Depressing, right? All his posse going with him. You guys, you guys are all going to betray me. You're all going to fall away, guys. For it is written that I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I rise up, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, Peter said to Jesus, Even though they will all fall away, I will not. 
Like, Jesus, all these dudes, they're just goons, okay? Judas is going to betray you. Everyone else is going to fall away. Bro, I am your man. I'm not going to fall away from you, which is really stupid to think about because he's already done it a bunch of times in the past. He's already kind of like, kind of questioned Jesus and all that. Jesus even called him the, the, the devil one time. But here's Peter like, hey, man, I'm good. I'm like your best member of this church here. I'm, he's like the one that screws up the most, right? And so he's, Jesus looks at him. He's like shaking his head. I can just see Jesus like, ah. Oh, and he looks at him and says, Peter, truly I tell you this, that this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Like, man, you don't even know what you're talking about. You're going to deny me tonight three times. But he said empathetically back to Jesus, if I must die with you, I will not deny you, <laughs> Peter. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna fall away from you. I'm, even if I have to die, I will not deny you. <laughs> and they all said at the same time. They all said at the same time. The funny thing is, is that that quote, that actual, that 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 promise that he made to Jesus was put to the test that same night when they're around the fire and they're going through the judgment. Jesus, and this woman recognizes Peter, and she says, that's the guy that runs with Jesus. That's him. That's him. And they knew that if they found out, they would kill him. So Peter goes, even if I die, I won't deny you, Jesus. And what does Peter do? He hears the rooster crow. He goes, I don't even know that guy. I don't even, uh, what? Uh, me? No. I'm not even, I'm not that guy. And she goes, no, no, no. You're the guy. And Peter's like, I, I don't even know that criminal. I don't know that guy. And she's like, I saw you with him earlier. He goes, man, what are you talking about? I was on my phone. I wasn't even like paying attention. Like, it's an association. Like, that's not me. Peter, the one who was so bent on not betraying Jesus, betrayed him three times just later on that day. If Peter could do that, what is our hope for not doing that? This is Peter. He walked with Jesus. Does anyone see his mistake, though? He was placing his confidence and his persevering in his own ability not to fall away versus placing his confidence in Jesus' ability to be faithful to him through the end. Jesus knows Peter and the rest of his disciples will fall away from him. Yet, in a showing of his faithfulness, he tells them, we will meet again after I am raised. After Jesus is raised, we're going to find out he comes back and they're out there and Peter's on the boat in the middle of the water. And he's fishing. He's depressed because he denied Jesus. He's like, man, I look like an idiot. I told him I wouldn't do it and I did it. And he's out there fishing and Jesus is on the shore. He's like, hey, dude, cast your net on the other side of the boat. Bring some fish over. I got the campfire going. We're going to barbecue some fish for breakfast, which is pretty redneck, and I love it. You know, but we're going to have a good time. Come on over. I love you. I'm here. And Peter does that, and he looks over, and he sees Jesus on the shore, and he understands that Jesus is back, and he still loves him. Does Peter roll the boat over to the shore? No. He strips naked, and he jumps in the water, and in his trunness, he starts going over to Jesus because he is so excited that the fact that Jesus loves him that he came back after he was raised and still came back for Jesus. The amazing thing is because Jesus had to die for us. The, the amazing thing is that because he had to die for us, the amazing thing is that he still came back for us. That he had to go through death. That's amazing to me. Because as a man, when someone sins against me, I want to selfishly just push them away. Selfishly, I want to do away with him. 
I, you know, I don't struggle with forgiveness very well, but if you do me over badly so many times, I eventually just want nothing to do with you. But Jesus tells his disciples, guys, you're going to be, you're going to do me wrong. You're going to just, you know, mess me over. You're going to betray me. But it's okay, because after I die, I'm going to come back, and we're going to have a great barbecue. It's going to be awesome. Because if you're Hispanic, you know that barbecues mend families together. Sometimes they split them apart, but most of the time we come down together, and we have a good time. The key here is this. After I am raised, Jesus died on the cross, paying the full penalty for sin that we did. He drank the full cup of God's wrath against him. He was broken and torn for us. There is no condemnation left over for us because it is all on him. But he did it because he loved his disciples, and he did it because he loved us. And yet, many of us will sin, and we think that Jesus could never forgive us because we don't understand that he has already done it for us. Remember, Jesus knew that the closest to him would be the ones that gravely betray him in sin, and yet he still decided to go to the cross for them. He knew that every single sin that would be committed against him would be done, but he knew that the death on the cross and the resurrection of him would cover all those sins. Many of you have changed since you become a believer in Christ, yes, but you cannot place your hope or your perseverance in the fact that you're just a better person now. You can't place your fact in the hope that, you know what, I don't do drugs no more. You know what, I don't drink as much as I used to anymore. You know, I don't have those hatred things in my heart anymore. You know what, I serve the homeless now. You cannot put your faith and, and perseverance in that. If you do that, you will eventually fall away from Jesus again because there is no strength in those things. Every time we sin, we see that we are greater sinners than we could ever imagine yet. He still went to the cross. And as he comes to us over and over and over again, we continue to sin and he still comes back over and over and over for us. We realize that God is more faithful than we ever dared dream. And we don't have to live in fear of not persevering because God is faithful. If we trust in God, if we trust in Jesus, you will be able to persevere until the end. There is a way for us to be confident and to be sure of the fact that we will make it to the end. It is not found in our ability to never fall away, but it is found in his ability to come over and over and over again to us in a relentless pursuit over us and in a relentless pursuit over you. Will you believe that today? Let's pray.